This is the space <clears throat> at the end of the retreat that is usually referred to as the integration talk. <clears throat> what we've been doing is called intensive practice. We've come from daily life here to do t- intensive practice. And so often a subtitle might be uh, intensive practice and daily life. Whereas now it's a, a movement back to where we came from. But I'd like to change that, if that were the subtitle, just slightly to make it intensive practice in daily life. Scratch out the and. Or maybe just intensive life, period. If you remember when we started Friday night, a few hundred years ago, the emphasis obviously here is in this room and sitting on the cushion. And so a certain amount of attention was given to jobs, walking from place to place, getting dressed, eating, and I hope from time to time uh, reinforced during the weekend, during the three days. Because if I didn't do that, what tends to happen is that the sitting gets so featured that the other aspects of life here are secondary, quite secondary. Now it's the reverse. Now we're going back into uh, moving to a situation where there's a lot of action, where things are happening more quickly, where Uh, It isn't necessarily silent. In fact, it's often quite the contrary. Almost as if it's organized to destroy whatever peace you might have developed here intentionally by some demonic force. And so now the emphasis is uh, in part also to sit. Make sure you sit when you go home. Try to sit each day because that can get lost very easily when you go back. The frame of reference that I personally have found most helpful is to see life as an undivided, homogeneous whole. So that even words like practice, which is a word certainly we all use a lot, I use it a lot, but I think we have to be careful with it. Because it can mean that there's a difference between your practice and your life. And maybe we don't need the word practice anymore. Not that we're more sophisticated than our ancestors in the human race who've kept these kinds of things alive. But it's more a language uh, nicety. That it's really always, at all times, our life that's involved, wherever we are. The best statement that I've heard on it comes from a movie that I saw recently called Banzai Buckaroo, which I walked out on after about 25 minutes. But there was one line in it which stays with me quite a bit, as some of you know. 
And it says, no matter where you go, there you are again. So, here we are at Barry doing an intensive practice, retreat, Buddhist meditation center. And then we're going to go somewhere else, but there we'll still be, it'll be us going there. The situations keep changing, the dramatic stage props change, the climate changes, yet there's something that's knowing it all the time. So if you look at it that way, I don't even need, think we need a special talk about integration, because it's obvious what has to be done. Just wherever we are, we bring the best quality of attention that we have to that. And that's not new. That's been said over and over again, certainly in Zen and many other of the Buddhist teachings. And the teachings itself, if you remember the, the initial quote, it's really to be mindful in every posture everywhere. But it's very easy to lose that. And to make sitting and special places that we go to sit stand out over and above everything else. It's a very delicate line. And personally, I find it a difficult one in terms of attempting to teach. I've found that when I emphasize the daily life a lot, then people don't sit so much. Well, they use that to justify not sitting or they forget to sit. So then I'll shift over and talk about how important it is to sit, to come up to Barry and sit as much as possible. And then daily life becomes really sloppy. And it really isn't two things. And yet our mind seems structured in such a way that it's as if we're getting away from one thing to come here and then, oh, we have to go back to that thing. Sometimes people feel that way. Maybe you don't. So we've been wounded, perhaps, out there, so to speak. And meditation has come along as a healing potential. And so we have that split in our mind. There's the world outside, which is cruel, dirty, noisy, ambitious, chaotic, fast. And then there's Barry. It's very nice, soft, a lot of gentle people, good food. We can sit and no one will bother us. People make food for us. If you stay here longer, your laundry gets done for you. It's true. (laughs) Who wouldn't want to be here? But the truth is, we're not going to stay here. We are going back. So it's not so much an ideology or anything of that sort. It's just purely pragmatic. Uh, Probably most of us, or maybe all of us, are not monks and nuns. Uh, We're not living a contemplative life 100% of the time that is living at a place like this. And the truth is we're going to be spending a fair amount of time, a lot of time, perhaps most of our time, in various offices, universities, families, uh, social situations. A huge amount of time. And if the only time anything really valuable gets done is the special occasions when we can get off the Barry or a reasonable facsimile thereof that we create in our homes, special room, 
where we try to accomplish the same thing with special rugs and pictures and incense, flowers. Then we go darting in and out of those spaces. And what about the rest of it? Is it really different? Is it really less valuable, in quotes, spiritually? I think it depends what we do with it. So the suggestion for when you go back is really pretty straightforward. It would be helpful to set up a sitting practice, a regular one. By experience, many people have found that it's more helpful to have a regular practice, that is day in and day out, than sporadic one where even if you sit for three or four hours or even longer, but then let days go by. There's something about the smooth, unrelenting, the continuity of each morning finding time to enter into silence. If you can, it would be really nice if you can, each evening finding some time to enter into silence. It's not really a luxury, a frill, but you have to find that out for yourself. Perhaps you know it isn't. If it isn't, it's not a luxury item, then perhaps what has to be done, and this is again part of inquiry, is to scrutinize our life and see if we can find ways of organizing our life to protect the high priority of a sitting practice. What I've discovered is that, which I think I mentioned, that very often what happens, people try to fit meditation into their schedule. And... It's just the other way around, if you come to value meditation. If you don't, I don't see where the energy or the motivation would come from. But if you know that this is valuable and you have some sense of what that value is, then it's really just the other way around. It's looking at your life and finding ways to reorganize that way of living so that some contemplative time is protected. It's very fragile. As if this is your, I know this is a first retreat for perhaps most of us here. It's very easy for it to get lost and stillness is extremely fragile. It's the first thing to go. There's so many other things, action, friends, all kinds of things. You look up and, like in the movies with the calendar pages, flipping you know, to convey time. Months go by. So it takes some real intention to protect this if you value it. And it's each person's uh, choice. If you value it, I think you have to do something to protect it or it will be overrun. And then periodically there'll be, a, there'll be remorse and maybe fiercely running to some retreat to correct for that. But perhaps we can evolve a way of living that's smoother which isn't always looking for special occasions to do self, this work of self-knowledge, of self-knowing. And so the attitude seems central. And what has helped me a lot has been looking at things as opportunities to learn. Cliché number 332 or as life as teacher. 
But it's not a cliché, but it very easily becomes a cliché. But we have now, those of you who have sat here for three days, you have what you need. I mean, you always had it. You didn't get it at Barry. It's sensitivity, consciousness, awareness. The ability to know what's happening to you as it's happening to you. There's a certain intelligence that each one of us has. It's intrinsic. We all have it. All we have to do is listen. Because the universe continues to teach us tirelessly over and over and over again, teaching all these lessons. It's interesting, the Buddha didn't feel he found any new thing. What he said was he, he rediscovered an ancient path. You might say a perennial or eternal or timeless path. Because it's the way things are. Things change in permanence. A very important aspect of our teaching. And that teaching is going on all the time. The universe never takes a holiday. Constantly teaching us that. Wherever we look. Not even, no weekend breaks, nothing. Always. Impermanence, impermanence, change. Unpredictability. All kinds of things are being taught to us. Otherwise, the teachings wouldn't be true. Well, if this is true, what what was just now said is true, then if we can begin to see what is happening to us, we can begin to learn and to free us, free ourselves. For example, if it's true that the basic cause for suffering is craving or attachment, that's put forward as a law, not an opinion. There's some real solid truth to that, no matter where you are or what time period you're living in. If you start to hold on to something and it's taken away from you and you keep holding on to it, it's very painful. And yet, that's what's happening. The the universe keeps changing. Everything seems to be a result of conditions. For example... This retreat is a set of conditions, intentionally organized, to make it more likely that we'll be able to calm down and develop some clarity and self-understanding. It's arranged for that. The conditions are intentional. It's not random or an accident. And we're always trying to improve our ability to do that. But conditions aren't permanent. So when the conditions change, so will our minds. So that if you have a notion, and this is just a, a caution, a precaution, or a caveat, let's say there's a certain amount, a level of stillness or joy or something that you value that came out of this retreat. Everything's interdepen- interdependent. So when we leave here, these conditions will no longer exist and if we don't understand that the conditions are integral to the experience, we'll get very disappointed as we see our samadhi or our concentration fall away. First toll booth and then cops and then cars and before you know it, you're back where you live and you feel hurt or disappointed as the steadiness and the calm that you thought you had underlying, you had it, 
starting to disintegrate right in your hands. Uh, this is not very much of a going away present, what I'm saying, but it's true. You'll see. Then again, if you live the practice out, it needn't be suffering because you see the conditions changing and you see your concentration starting to fall away. So what? What of it if your concentration starts to get weaker? You don't have these conditions anymore. But if you hold to the fact that I had calm at Barry, why don't I have it now in Boston? Well, Boston and Barry are different, or IMS and Boston are different. The conditions have changed, making it increasingly less likely for us to be calm, clear, etc. Now, the odd thing is, as we can start to see that, to move with whatever happens, instead of insisting that things have to be a certain way, we can come to a certain amount of clarity in Boston or New York or wherever, Canada. We can just, but if we resist it, we're set back. Do you follow what I'm, what I'm trying to say? I mean, it's only natural to want to hold on to what we think we've acquired here. But it's not possible. And if we can let go of that expectation and move with what is, we actually, in a way, will have what we acquired here. Or at least more in that direction. And the lessons to be learned are all over the place. Relationship as a teacher, our families, work situations. If we have the right attitude, the attitude being one of challenge, opportunity, occasion for self-discovery. The deeper the challenge, the greater the unreleased potential that can become accessible to a person. So if you're really challenged at work or in some personal relationship, the other side of that is a tremendous amount of energy that's captive, that's tied up, perhaps in a destructive or a frozen way. But if we just turn things around and see a bad situation is really a good situation. Some of that was coming out in the discussion group. Someone who's giving you a very hard time can teach you a lot. The Dalai Lama and... China kind of thing. But in order for the teaching to happen, we have to be alert and sensitive and to see the impact that it's having on us. And that keeps changing from moment to moment. Freeing ourselves from the limitations. (coughs) That we experience. I think um, just a few more words and perhaps there are some questions. If you can, try to set up a regular sitting schedule. If you can, find some people to sit with. As you probably can see from this weekend, it's very helpful to have other people who are walking the same path. In modern terms, a support group. There's great strength in a group of people attempting to come to know themselves and even if we don't talk to each other, we're helping each other. 
if you live someplace where there aren't meditation groups, in fact, you don't know anything, if anything exists, perhaps check with the office. Sometimes all that is necessary is one other person to be living where you live. You may not even know them, but there's someone who comes here and practices. We've tried this a few times and it's been helpful. Call that person up and perhaps one night a week you get together and sit. Before you know it, three people come and then four. It happens that way. And so that can strengthen your practice. Use the center as much as you can. Come here when you have free time. When you sit, give it your fullest attention, fullest energy. And when the time to sit ends, let's say you have to go to work, unfold your legs and enter fully into what's next. And when that ends, enter fully into what's next. And so forth. Perhaps come home in the evening, fold your legs again and sit. And when the time comes to end that, get up and do what's next. Now, what's next is often in quotes, mundane or trivial. And so one of the obstacles to having the practice happen all the time is that we have these priorities in our mind. One of the um, finest teachings on this, if you can get a little book called Refining Your Life by a Japanese Zen master called Uchiyama Roshi. He has a commentary on a, a guidebook for the Zen cook. Essentially a lot of... Uh, guidelines for how a Zen cook should uh, conduct that job, carry out that job. And in it are hints like, if there's going to be a big festival or feast and you have lots of good ingredients available, it's very easy to be alert and pay attention and put together some incredible meal. Maybe there are going to be a lot of honored guests coming. But then, um, I don't remember the exact quote, but it was, he said, but then when it's just a few scraggly monks and just a bunch of leftover greens and maybe some you know, old rice, and of course there isn't much attention. Just do it haphazardly. Well, the challenge is, can you bring just as much attention and creativity to those old greens and the scraggly couple of monks as the, the, uh, the more festive opportunity for eating. And a lot of examples like that. Cutting through those kinds of things. And that's what I mean, that it's wherever we go, there's our life. Whatever we encounter is our life. If we enter wholeheartedly into whatever it is we encounter, we're living wholeheartedly. It's the quality of our life that we're talking about. And yet the mind plays games as if there are big chunks of time where this isn't our life because it's uninteresting or those greens or particular block that you're walking through, it's not so interesting, the architecture is dull and so you space out. Now, if you hear what I say, it's, I would say, um, very demanding It's hard work, but it isn't if you really want it. 
You know when you work hard at something that you uh, care about, that you really believe in, that you want, it's a very different kind of hard work than if it's just hard work for hard work's sake. All of this is in the service of self-understanding, of freedom. In the process, good meals perhaps get cooked, you know, and, not, and we become more effective in our work. But a momentum is developed, which is then brought to the cushion when we sit, and the time we spend sitting and the cushion is brought to daily life, and after a while it's just one uninterrupted thing. Now, when I say intensive practice in daily life, what I mean is that if you try to live this way, it's easily as intensive as a three-month course. If you're attempting to have a really authentic relationship with someone, say a man and woman attempting to live in an honest, compassionate, loving way, that's hard work. It's very difficult. It's quite a challenge. And there's no reason to see that as inferior to sitting on the cushion for 14 hours a day or in a cave. That's also hard work and valuable. My own experience is that different things are learned, all necessary. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Uh, This will will reveal a bias that I have. In practicing in the Zen tradition for a while, there a lot is made of the interview situation in certain schools of Zen and a form of meditation practice called koans. They're enigmatic challenges that you work with and you solve them and then are given another one and another one and another one. Well, there are a whole, there's a whole curriculum of these koans and you can pass through them. It can take many years. And the first observation I made is that there are some people who seem to be very good at that. As long as they're in the interview room, the assumption always was that that would carry over and that if you were good at that, then it would carry over into the rest of your life. Sort of an unwritten assumption. But what I saw was quite the contrary. That it was possible for some people to be excellent in that situation And then as soon as they were a man, as soon as a woman came in the situation, forget about it. Just all over. Or a complicated social situation. And recently here in this this country, we saw quite a few Zen teachers who were Zen masters, who were confirmed in certain ways as having passed some of these training obstacles or grades, have a very difficult time of it regarding women. Now, are we supposed to just turn our back to that and just say that didn't happen? My own conclusion is, and I note the koans are invaluable. It's a very, it's a brilliant, wonderful training system. But relationship seems to have a life of its own. It seems if we're to live with that same quality in relationship, it's not enough to pass all our koans because there's still the relationship koan, the man-woman koan, the job koan, whatever it is. And setting any one thing up as the TB test or the litmus paper. This is, if you do this, then you're okay and everything else. I just haven't seen that work personally. Maybe it does, but I haven't seen it. So what makes sense if there's, I'm talking to myself perhaps right now, if that's true, is that everything has to be taken on its own terms. 
and there's no final resting place. We just keep moving with life. Each situation in its own way is our challenge. And we learn from it what we can. And we do the best we can. We fall down and we get up. So when we come to Barry, we sit really hard, as all of you have done. And I appreciate that. It's uh, been wonderful working together because, I don't know if you... It's the same thing about conditions. It's, I'm not a tape recorder. And so, depending on how you work, it brings things out of me. And you've all worked very hard. And a lot of really good questions, good meaning they were real. In other words, you were asking questions that you cared about. And so it brought me out of myself. And when we leave Barry, fine. It's over. And then move to what's next and begin to learn that what's next, even though it's not considered officially spiritual, and I think maybe that's the problem, a large part of the problem, this gets defined. It's an incredibly powerful stage set. And so it goes on here. If you do walking here, it's spiritual. But if you're walking in Harvard Square, you're just walking. But that's a mind game. From a certain point of view, there's no Buddhist meditation center here. It's the same plaster that made these walls. And it's life. It's homogeneous. It just keeps running on. It's a convenient dramaturgical innovation and it can be very useful. But we don't want to get trapped in our own creation. Because if we do, then we're, it's a kind of hothouse freedom that's being talked about. The only time we can feel free is under special conditions. Now, if we were going to live out our days as monks and nuns or as contemplative yogis in places like this, I don't know that it would matter. Perhaps we would never receive certain kinds of challenges. This would be what our life is. And I'm not saying that that's inferior in any way. I don't think anyone can is going to experience absolutely every situation that's available. This would be our life. And so we would work as hard as we could with these challenges. But the fact of the matter is that we aren't going to live that way. This is a tr- the truth. Do an inventory. Those of you who have been coming for a while and those of you who are just starting, you probably will spend a small fraction of your time at places like this. No matter how much you love it. Which means we need a practice that gives dignity and respect and energy to everything that we do. We have to put energy into that. We have to enliven it, spiritualize it, which is no more than saying we have to revive life. We have to start giving life to life rather than killing life. Every time we fall out of the moment and are distracted, sluggish, dull, just dozing off but, mo- but walking on automatic pilot. In a way, we've killed life. And every time we come awake again and are sensitive and wholehearted, we've given life to life. Any questions?
Does any of that make sense? Does it sound reasonable? What? Quaint? Oh, great. If only what? Well, why not? Why not do it? No, don't plan to. Do it. No more questions? No comments? Oh, sorry. You know, it just occurs to me that we've created this environment and we've sanctified it in a way. This is a something about, we come to a meditation center, it's used for this purpose over and over again. There's a certain atmosphere here, very helpful. Why can't our homes be that way? Or why, why can't our homes become an ashram? Each person in their own way. If you live alone, you do it alone. If you live with other people, together. Or create an environment. I don't mean necessarily with icons, or if that helps, fine. But just the way in which living is carried out in it. And I don't mean it in a stilted or formalistic way. But just the uh, respect given to whatever goes on in the home. Uh, One experiment we're about to start, we'll find out in a while, uh, it's it's the, the results. We're starting a center in Cambridge. And a lot of the incentive for starting it comes from the problems that face meditators after they leave Barry, which I've been listening to for many years. Or it's, it's as if everything's wonderful here and then you go back out and it's just a void. And I don't mean a Buddhist void. And so we're going to attempt to have a contemplative center in the middle of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is Broadway and uh, Amory Street in Cambridge. And two features of it perhaps can be suggestive. On the ground floor, we're going to try and... uh, We're not going to try. We're going to (laughs) protect stillness. The meditation hall will be there and be used for that. And people will be able to use that from the morning, early morning until late at night. Sometimes group sittings and sometimes just a person coming in during their lunch hour or whenever they want to. And on the second floor will be more community type things. In the Buddhist terminology, the Sangha. Uh, community of like-minded people. Both seem to be needed. Uh, I neglected to mention that, that one of the problems 
and I've experienced it acutely, not so much in my own life, but I hear about it a lot. That is because I've been teaching these things for a while, I spend a lot of time with meditators and people interested in these things, and so my life is very rich. I'm around people who want to learn these things and we're doing these things, but what I've been hearing for quite a few years now is that the people that I know then leave the particular retreat or group sitting or whatever it is and go into social situations where they're the only meditator, where nobody really has this interest and where they've started to move away from the interest that they may have had for many years, including the friends that they may have had for many years. And so be sort of neither here nor there. It's a kind of very isolating, can be a very isolating and lonely situation. And so it's no accident that for millennia, uh, people have practiced together. That's one attempt to solve that in Cambridge, but each one of us has to do it in our own way. If there's no center, doing it in a smaller way, getting a group of friends together to create a sangha, a community of people who support each other. Can you figure out why I do that? I go to the movies a lot. No meditators in the movies. A lot of people sitting next to each other. True. (laughs) I seem to be addicted to sitting. Can we have a moment or two of silence, please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.